The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Navigating Complex Decisions at the Intersection of Local and Systemic Management of Early Breast Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RGA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you for joining us for this peer review session on navigating complex decisions at the intersection of local and systemic management of early breast cancer. So for faculty, I'm one of the breast surgeons at Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center and an associate professor of surgery from Harvard Medical School. We also have Sarah Tulaney, who is a medical oncologist. She's the chief of the Division of Breast Oncology and the associate director of the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And we're also joined by another one of my colleagues who is a medical oncologist, Adrienne Wax. She's associate director of clinical research in breast oncology, also at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Hey, and I'd like to turn the first part of our program over to Dr. Tulaney. Thanks so much, Laura. So we've sort of divided the program up into different sections where we'll cover triple negative breast cancer approaches, ER positive breast cancer approaches, and HER2 positive. So we'll start off with the triple negative section. We'll start off with a case. So a 30-year-old healthy woman without a family history is diagnosed with a left-sided triple negative breast cancer. It does have lymphovascular invasion, it's high grade, and it's about four and a half centimeters. Ultrasound shows that there's one abnormal node. It's biopsy proven to have cancer within it, and a clip was placed in both the primary and the axillary node. I think our approach for triple negative breast cancer has changed a bit over the last couple years in particular. So currently, we do think about preoperative therapy for our patients who have stage 2 and 3 triple negative disease very standardly. And when we do that, we typically are using this regimen we call the Keynote 522 regimen, which is a little complicated because it involves giving weekly chemotherapy with carboplatin and paclitaxel in addition to pembrolizumab which is followed by anthracycline chemotherapy. So we are usually using AC chemotherapy in combination with pembrolizumab. And the reason we're doing this is that this trial had taken patients, in essence, with stage 2 and 3 breast cancer and randomized them to get chemotherapy with or without pembrolizumab. And then after surgery, this was done at a time when we didn't realize that we should be adapting therapy based on response to preoperative treatment. And so everyone who got pembro pre-op got adjuvant pembro, and then everyone who was on placebo got adjuvant placebo. And what the study showed was that adding the pembrolizumab to the chemotherapy did significantly improve pathologic complete response rates. So you see it's actually pretty impressive that the PCR rate with chemopembro is about 65%, so really a very impressive improvement. And I think important to note, it doesn't matter if the tumor is pdl one positive or pdl one negative. Both subtypes are really deriving benefit from the use of pembro. You see there's an improvement both for the pdl one positive and negative groups. What you do see, though, is that in general, pd one positive tumors, whether you get PEMBRO or not, do tend to have higher PCR rates. But again, it's not a predictor for benefiting from PEMBRO, so no need to test a tumor for pdl one to know if they need immunotherapy in this setting. And so while there was an improvement in PCR, it's, I think, even more important that there was an improvement in event-free survival. So you can see that the patients who get chemo-pembro had substantially longer time without having events, as you can see here with a delta between the two arms of about 8%. Interestingly, I think consistent what we've learned over time is that people who have a PCR tend to have very good long-term outcomes compared to the people without a PCR where you can see much higher rates of recurrence, although better for the patients who got PEMBRA relative to those who did not. 
So one question I think we've had is who really needs Pembro? Obviously, in Keynote 522, it was all stage 2-3 patients who received this regimen, but could we discern who really needs it based on any clinical pathologic factors? So for example, if you have nodal positivity, are you likely to achieve better outcomes with the addition of Pembro compared to lymph node negative patients? But what you see is a hazard ratio for benefit from Pembro is really pretty much the same in node positive and node negative patients. So it's not that we can say that node negative patients don't need immunotherapy because they're also gaining similar relative benefit from the addition of Pembro to their chemo. The challenge is that these drugs have a lot of side effects. We do know that patients who get immunotherapy can experience immune-related toxicities, many of which are permanent lifelong toxicities. And we're treating early-stage curative patients with these agents, and I think we do have to be cautious. About 20% of people will get permanent thyroid toxicity from use of pembrolizumab in this setting. We do see 5 to 6% of patients end up with adrenal insufficiency, again, likely permanent lifelong toxicity. And then there are rarer toxicities, things like pneumonitis, hepatitis, colitis, even developing type 1 diabetes. So things, again, that we do have to be cautious about. And it's not so clear about the timing. You know, most immune-related toxicities can occur early, but you can see late toxicity even a year after discontinuing the Pembro. You can still see immune-related toxicities emerge. And so important to realize that while typically most of these toxicities are occurring early, you can still see late side effects. And this just really shows you the different rates of toxicities as we were discussing with the most common side effects from being immune-related from Pembro being thyroid toxicity. So given the substantial benefits of Pembro, not just in terms of improving PCR, but also in improving event-free survival, it did get FDA approved back in 2021 to be used both in the pre-op setting and in the post-pre-op setting, again, given the way it was administered in the 522 study. But I think there are lots of questions we still don't know. Everyone got that adjuvant Pembro. We don't really know if that's needed. It was just the way it was given. Maybe the benefit is being derived from the preoperative portion. You can see in a trial where people didn't get the adjuvant portion of the immunotherapy, it looks like the event-free survival is pretty similar to what you see in the right in the Keynote 522 regimen where people did get the adjuvant Pembro. So it does beg the question if that part's really needed or not. And so there's a trial that should be opening in the next few months that's going to test this out to see if people who achieve PCR to pre-op Pembro really need that adjuvant portion in a non-inferiority design. And so there's a trial that should be opening in the next few months that's going to test this out to see if people who achieve PCR to pre-op Pembro really need that adjuvant portion in a non-inferiority design. I think another question we come up with is if someone's gotten their pre-op therapy and they are going to go on to get radiation, do you continue the Pembro during the radiation or do you hold it with the radiation and then restart it afterwards? There were patients in Keynote 522 who did get concurrent Pembro with radiation. There weren't any significant toxicities that were seen from getting concurrent therapy, and so it's fine to do so. There's some thoughts that there may be benefit from doing that with potential synergistic activity with concurrent Pembro RT, but we don't really know that for sure. So I think in my mind, most of us are giving it concurrently, but we don't know if that's completely necessary. And I think from a medical oncology standpoint, 
the other challenge we face is we know people with residual disease have very high risk of recurrence. And, you know, just at the time that Keynote 522 was occurring, we learned that you can adapt therapy based on response. So if someone has residual disease, giving them additional chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting does improve outcomes. And so we learned this from CreateX, which had taken people who had gotten preoperative chemotherapy and had residual disease and randomized them to get capecitabine or no additional therapy. And for the triple negative subgroup in this trial, we learned that using capecitabine improved both disease-free and overall survival. So it had become our standard approach. But in Keynote 522, they did not allow this. So we don't actually have data for how to think about adding additional treatments in patients who have residual disease based on the way 522 was conducted. We also know for patients who have germline BRCA mutations that they also derive benefit from a year of adjuvant PARP inhibition. This came from the Olympia trial where patients with germline BRCA mutations, if they were triple negative, they had to have residual disease after pre-op therapy or at least have a T2 and 0 tumor and then went on to get a year of PARP or placebo. And in that setting, you can see there was an improvement in invasive disease-free survival as well as overall survival, again, making this now a standard approach for someone who has high-risk germline BRCA-mutated disease. And so that did lead to an FDA approval for use of Olaparib in this population of high-risk germline BRCA-mutant patients. So if we think about our, our patients currently, again, we would recommend giving preoperative therapy to a stage 2-3 patient because we know we can adapt treatment based on response. And so really important to give those patients the opportunity to get preoperative treatment so we can see how they do. Again, if they have stage 2-3 disease, we are usually using that complicated Keynote 522 regimen with carbotaxel Pembro followed by AC Pembro. And then if they have a pathologic complete response, then we give them just the adjuvant Pembro, whereas if they don't have a PCR, that's where it's a little complicated and a bit data-free. I think for most of us, if they have residual disease, we're, it's a bit made up, but we're giving the combination of capecitabine and Pembro, sort of merging what we learned from Keynote 522 and what we learned from CreateX. So we give six months of capecitabine and the nine cycles of Pembro in the outback setting, whereas if they had a germline BRCA mutation and had residual disease, many of us are combining the elapsed with the Pembro, again, sort of merging trial data, which, you know, is not entirely fair, but knowing these patients are at high risk, that's generally the way we have approached things. So if we circle back to our case, again, this was a young patient who had presented with a fairly sizable four and a half centimeter cancer that was high grade and triple negative and did have a biopsy proven node. And so I think most of us agreed with use of preoperative therapy here, but I think there are a lot of other questions that come up. And so I'll turn to my very smart colleagues on the panel here to help me out. So if you saw this patient 30 years old with a triple negative cancer, Laura, what do you think about genetic counseling and genetic testing? Is this something you are routinely offering to your patients, and if so, in which patients? Sure. So I think there is a fair amount of information that suggests that all patients with breast cancer should be offered the potential for genetic testing just because what we used to think about for family history and other things that might have led us to felt that they met the criteria for testing really don't necessarily yield a much higher rate of genetic mutations than just testing anybody. That being said, in this woman who's 30 who has a triple negative breast cancer, absolutely, I would do strongly recommend that she do genetic testing. Yeah, I think we made the case a little bit obvious <laughs> with regards to the, the need for genetic testing here, and, and I totally agree. And Ada, if you see this patient, what systemic therapy would you be offering in the preoperative setting? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I absolutely, I would recommend the full keynote 522 regimen. You know, I think that's pretty cut and dry for a node positive, triple negative breast cancer. I think as we'll see on a subsequent case, there is somewhat of a gray area where you're node negative and maybe a little bit smaller in the T2 range. But, you know, I would say this is cut and dry to give the full keynote 522. And so, Laura, what do you all think about breast imaging? So if you see this patient up front, what type of imaging are you getting before any systemic therapy? And then what kind of breast imaging are you going to get after she completes? completes her pre-op therapy and before she goes to surgery. Yeah. So, I mean, these patients generally having a palpable finding and then going on to have a biopsy will have all generally had mammogram and an ultrasound. And this patient obviously had, you know, an abnormal node and had an ultrasound of that as well. For a patient who's receiving preoperative systemic therapy, I think that's where I do consider getting an MRI for a patient and a 30-year-old may be quite dense. And I think that may be a nice way to sort of evaluate response to systemic therapy, particularly for those settings where you might not be sure that they're responding so well and want to have some sort of baseline to check. For a patient who's interested in breast conservation, this tumor was obviously four and a half centimeters in size to begin with. I'd probably repeat all of those things afterwards. If the patient did have a mutation or was certain that she was going to have a mastectomy, I don't routinely repeat all the imaging. I think that there are certain times when we're trying to maybe draw back on some of the systemic therapy and may use an MRI as a way to see if we think that they might need additional systemic therapy before their surgery. But in this setting, I don't think that you guys would be wanting to give her additional systemic therapy after the keynote regimen. So I wouldn't feel strongly about that if she didn't have evidence of pectoralis involvement or something that made her non-operable to begin with. We've given them a lot of chemo with the keynote regimen, so there's not not much room for, for a lot more. And so Ada, you know, if we're giving this preoperative pembrolizumab and chemotherapy, how are you monitoring them? We talked a lot about the fact that there are immune-related toxicities that can emerge. What do you need to check when you're seeing patients through this type of treatment? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you showed on your figure with all sorts of different organ systems potentially affected and all sorts of potential time courses, you know, unfortunately, this is something we have to think about for a long duration of time and really potentially impacting the entire body. So I think that really important can't miss one in the perioperative setting or the preoperative setting as they complete their immunotherapy-based neoadjuvant treatment and are about to go on to breast surgery is to look for adrenal insufficiency. And we do typically screen for that, even in somebody where you're not, you know, seeing fatigue and hypotension, you know, obvious clinical symptoms. So I do always, at some point at the tail end of the preoperative systemic therapy, check a cortisol level just to try to make sure that we're not setting up our surgical colleagues for any enormous problems in the operating room. So I think that's the most important, you know, can't miss with respect to surgical planning. But certainly, you know, we're also monitoring, which much, what's much more common is to see thyroid dysfunction. We see that in, you know, 10 to 15% of patients. So we're monitoring that on labs throughout the course of the neoadjuvant and adjuvant pumbro, and then obviously looking clinically for all sorts of things that if they came up could also impact surgical planning, like, you know, terrible diarrhea, colitis, respiratory symptoms, pneumonitis, looking at glucose values, diabetes, you know, but those would come up more in the course of routine monitoring. I think checking the pre-op cortisol is the one that, you know, we all try to just keep in our heads and not forget. No, no, good point. And then I think a complicated question that sometimes comes up, at least from a medical oncology standpoint, is what are surgeons going to do with those lymph nodes? 
episodes. So if someone presented with a note up front, as this patient did, and let's say she has a tremendous response to the Keynote 522 regimen and clinically is now node negative, what are you going to do for axillary evaluation, Laura, at the time of surgery? And how would that be different if there was residual nodal disease? Yeah, so I think if a patient had clinically palpable node prior to chemotherapy and at the end of their chemotherapy continued to have a grossly abnormal and palpable node, we would generally recommend an axillary lymph node dissection. If in this setting, if this patient really had a clinically negative axilla, and that's by physical exam after her chemotherapy, she does have one abnormal node. It does have a clip present. We would generally try to localize the clip node, use dual tracer, and offer the patient a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And generally, we would do intraoperative evaluation because, as you know, we've talked a lot about nodes today, but for those patients who have negative sentinel nodes in this setting, there really is data that supports that if you have, you know, good sample size and you've retrieved the clip node, that there is not necessarily a benefit to doing an axillary dissection in that setting until we have more data about the Alliance trial that's currently sort of waiting for the data to mature than a patient with a positive node in the setting after neoadjuvant systemic therapy. We would generally recommend an axillary dissection. Thank you. That's helpful. And then Aided, maybe just to conclude with this case, if this patient had residual disease, what type of therapy are you going to give her? And how do you time that therapy with respect to radiation? You know, as you showed, I think regardless of residual disease or not, at this point, everybody is getting about nine cycles of adjuvant pembrolizumab. But she's definitely going to get adjuvant pembrolizumab. I'm going to assume that she doesn't have a germline BRAC mutation, in which case I would get the Zalota concurrent with the adjuvant pembrolizumab. But if she did, and this is sort of a setup for some who maybe we would have found that on their germline testing, then in the presence of residual disease, she absolutely would meet the inclusion criteria for the Olympia trial. And I would offer her a year of Olaparib in place of the capecitabine and would also do that concurrently with the pembrolizumab. So we'll just twist this a little bit because I think this does come up in clinic and sometimes this is a bit challenging, is what if someone's a little, we made the first case kind of obvious, but what if someone's a little bit more borderline? So what if they have a T1C tumor, so it's 1.7 centimeters, and clinically they seem to be node negative? Now what do you do? Because this isn't as straightforward as the previous case, which was a stage you know, 2-3 patient where we knew we had to give pre-op Keynote 5 to 2 regimen. So, Ada, how do you approach a patient like this if you see them in clinic? And how do you decide, one, if you need to take them to pre op therapy? And two, if you are going to give pre op treatment, what treatment are you going to give? Because they technically right now seem to fall outside the Keynote 522 regimen. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this makes me a little more anxious as a medical oncologist or as a little more complex because the other one was just such a shoo-in to give them everything we've got. And here, you know, that's clearly not necessarily the right thing to do. So, you know, the first thing that we always try to do is to make sure, even if we don't feel any lymph nodes present in the axilla, is to make sure radiographically that we've done everything we possibly can to feel confident that this person is going to turn out to be pathologically known positive. We obviously can't be entirely certain of that no matter what we do. And some of our institutional data, as well as a large national database, has shown that for a clinical T1CN0 like this, triple negative tumor, there's around 11 to 15 percent chance when they get to upfront surgery that they will have a pathologically positive node. And obviously, we very much would have wished we had given that person an immunotherapy-based regimen. So in trying to avoid that possibility. We always try to do an axillary ultrasound for these patients. It still obviously doesn't guarantee that you won't find pathologic nodal positivity if you want to upfront surgery, but can hopefully reduce that 
proportion somewhat. So in order to help make this decision about preoperative versus non-preoperative therapy and which regimen, I would certainly do everything possible to stage the axilla, number one. And then, you know, certainly if you then see a suspicious node in biopsy and it's positive, then you're off on keynote 522 path and that's cut and dry. But let's say you don't see anything suspicious and you really think that this is a clinical T1C and zero. So in that case in general, I do not give the full keynote regimen preoperatively because of the reason, you know, first of all, they weren't eligible for keynote 522 if that's a clinically stage one cancer. And all of us as medical oncologists have given patients, you know, lifelong and life-altering toxicities from the immunotherapy. So we very much try not to give it, of course, in, in a situation where we don't think it, it will have meaningful benefit and this person wouldn't be eligible again for the keynote trial. So that being said, in sort of a generously sized clinical T1C N0 and a younger woman, I probably would still offer preoperative therapy because I would want to give her the benefit of receiving adjuvant capecitabine if she did turn out to have residual disease or adjuvant if she were germline mutant mutation carrier and turned out to have residual disease. So in a case like this, I would actually potentially give preoperative just ACT and then tailor in the adjuvant setting if necessary. Yeah, so I think, you know, still for T1C, particularly tumors over 1.5 centimeters, most of us like to give pre-op therapy and then just figuring out what systemic therapy is really the question and axillary evaluation, at least by ultrasound, I think should be done up front. So if we switch gears a little, now we move to hormone receptor positive disease. Um, So this is a 42-year-old woman who was found to have a right-sided ER-positive HER2-negative invasive cancer. It was intermediate grade and two centimeters in size. There was an ultrasound done of the axilla that did identify a single node that appeared thickened and FNA was done with clip placement identifying that there was nodal involvement. And so, Laura, how do you think, if you see this patient in clinic, is this someone you're going to take to surgery up front? Would you recommend they get pre-op therapy? And if you do take them to surgery up front, what are you doing for a nodal evaluation? Yeah, so I think, you know, I these are the kinds of cases I really like to have a multidisciplinary discussion about with my colleagues because I think when I look at this from the surgical standpoint, there's a patient with a, you know, if we say two centimeters would be a reasonable size for this patient to have a lumpectomy based on her breast volume. And the fact that there's a single node with that is, you know, ultrasound abnormal, and I'm going to go ahead and pretend that her exam is normal. Someone just looked with the ultrasound, which we really only want to do pre-op for triple negative and HER2 positive, but if the exam is negative. But if we're looking and we found this one node, my question becomes, is there going to be some benefit from the surgical standpoint for her to have neoadjuvant systemic therapy? And if her cancer is already small enough that she'd be able to have a lumpectomy, if she preferred, there's really not a reason there. And I think the other question becomes, what would the benefit of trying to downstage her be? Or what's the likelihood be that you'd be able to downstage her with preoperative chemotherapy? And I think that, number one, it's not clear to me that a patient like this necessarily is going to get preoperative chemotherapy, and that's where my medical oncology colleagues come in. And number two, when we've looked at the pathologic complete response rate in the axilla for a hormone-positive HER2-negative breast cancer, it's at best about 20%. And so I think that making a decision to take this patient through a course of preoperative systemic therapy for that purpose alone really wouldn't be something that I would recommend. So if there was not felt to be a compelling reason from the medical oncology standpoint that she needed preoperative systemic therapy, then the next question would be upfront surgery and what to do with the axilla. Clearly, if the patient had a, you know, a grossly abnormal node on exam, I think in general people still would recommend an axillary lymph node dissection. These are the patients where we think a little bit about if it's really the exam is negative and the ultrasound is what's identifying, a, you know, a single slightly thickened node. Are these patients where it's really more appropriate to manage them as per Z11? Meaning that you would potentially say if this patient really is clinically node negative by exam and does not have grossly abnormal nodes in the operating room, would it be appropriate to ensure that this 
this clipped node comes out and do a sentinel node on this patient. I think I still have a pretty careful discussion with patients about this because it's definitely not something that's in the NCCN guidelines clearly right now. But I think this kind of situation is the one where I would think about offering that. Oh, that's really helpful. And I, I think from a medical oncology standpoint, this is, as Laura alluded to, this is someone who likely isn't going to get a pathologic complete response. Most of our systemic therapies here with chemo usually only yield about an 8 to 12% PCR rate. And so it's not like HER2 positive or triple negative disease. So usually we push towards pre-op therapy if we know it's going to help our surgical colleagues achieve breast conservation, at least by shrinking the tumor a bit to, to allow for that. In this case, probably not necessary with a, a two centimeter cancer. But in those situations where there is a need, I often will send a genomic assay off the core to understand if there's someone who's going to get benefit from chemotherapy or not to to help me know what treatment to give pre-op. But in the adjuvant setting, our treatments have changed a bit from a medical oncology standpoint, where we now have the ability not just to give endocrine therapy to our high-risk ER-positive patients, but also to use a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So this study, Monarch-E, looked at patients who had what we would deem high-risk ER-positive disease. This was defined as having four or more positive nodes or one to three positive nodes with another high-risk feature, meaning you had to have a high-grade tumor, a big tumor, so over five centimeters, or could have a high ki 67 and then patients got randomized to get their endocrine therapy with or without abemacyclib, where the abemacyclib was given for two years of that portion of time. And here you can see that using abemacyclib did improve invasive disease-free survival with about a risk reduction of a third, so a pretty sizable reduction in risk of recurrence. And most of the benefit is seen in preventing distant events, which I think is quite important. You know, using these drugs does certainly add toxicity. Abemacyclib is an agent that is associated with GI toxicity. So it is important, you know, us medical oncologists are always monitoring for this and using antidiarrheal agents as needed and sometimes dose modification. It does cause some neutropenia, but it's quite mild relative to other CDK4-6 inhibitors. But we are usually monitoring blood counts and we also look at liver function enzymes because those can sometimes get elevated on abemacyclib. It can also falsely elevate the creatinine. I think that that sometimes comes up when you're checking labs as well. So just to be aware of that. The things that are kind of rare but important to realize is there is a risk of blood clot with these agents. It generally is pretty low at about 2.5%, but if given concurrently with tamoxifen, that risk goes up to a little over 4%. So important to be aware of that. And there's about a 3% risk of interstitial lung disease. So again, important if a patient presents with any respiratory symptoms to realize this could be a potential cause. There's been a lot of debate in our medical oncology world about whether or not we should be using KI-67 to help predict which patients are going to derive benefit from monarchy because initially the FDA approval was not just for the monarchy eligibility based on size and grade and nodal involvement, but also required patients to have a high KI-67, which I'll be honest, I found a little surprising given the data had shown that abemacyclib was benefiting patients irrespective of KI-67. Here you can see benefits seen in both high and low KI-67 patients. But the FDA has revised their approval guidance, and so now the approval is for patients just based on the monarchy eligibility based on size, nodal status, and grade. You do not now have to have an elevated KI-67, which makes our lives in the medical oncology world a little bit easier. 
So I think one question that I often get asked by our plastic surgical colleagues is if I have a patient on an endocrine agent and a bemocyclob and they need to go get reconstruction surgery, what do I do with their medications? Do you need to hold drugs or not surrounding that? And Ada, what do you do in, in this situation? Yeah, so I would hold, I would not necessarily hold an aromatase inhibitor, peri-reconstruction or peri-any surgery, but the abemocyclib I would certainly hold for two main reasons. One being that it certainly can cause neutropenia or any type of cytopenias, but neutropenia would be the one that we worry about the most. Obviously, we don't want to make you take somebody to surgery who's neutropenic, number one. And then number two is the VTE risk, which as you showed is not astronomically high, but we know is elevated a bit with the abemocyclib, especially if this person's on AI, but especially if they were on TAM with the bemocyclib. So I would hold it for, you know, a few weeks, probably at least two weeks ahead of time and at least two weeks afterwards, making sure that they're back up on their feet and have, you know, are mobile again postoperatively before resuming. Yeah, and I think certainly it depends on what kind of reconstruction surgery, right? If it's just like an expanded implant, and I not indeed, so, yes, yeah, like it's a, a different than deep, is fine. Yes. yeah, but a deep, a little different. So I think we we discuss that with our plastic surgical colleagues. So I will turn things over to my colleague Ada to take us through her two positive disease. Thanks, everybody. All right. So I'll take us through the third and final, but in my opinion, most interesting subtype of breast cancer, which is early stage HER2 positive breast cancer. And I will keep my eye on the clock. We definitely want to have a couple minutes for questions. Let's start with the case. So we have a 55-year-old woman who self-palpates a left breast mass. She has an mammogram and a breast ultrasound, and the mass is 1.7 centimeters. She has a biopsy that shows this a grade 3 ER positive and HER2 positive invasive ductal carcinoma, and on physical exam, measures about 1.5 centimeters, so again, in that T1C range. And again, on physical exam, you don't appreciate any axillary adenopathy. I think it really is an open question and an interesting question about what is the optimal approach for a clinical T1C and zero HER2 positive tumor like this patient has. And, you know, I think even more strongly than in the triple negative setting, there are very legitimate arguments even in this larger stage one patient population to take these patients to upfront surgery. And that's the fact that we have two large prospective trials. They both happen to have been run by Dr. Tulaney right there that showed us that we can achieve excellent outcomes by taking these stage one HER2 positive patients to upfront surgery and then treating them with a de-escalated regimen in the adjuvant setting. So the first of those was the APT trial, which looked at upfront surgery followed by the adjuvant TH regimen, which is 12 weeks of Taxol and a year of Herceptin. We saw an excellent 10-year recurrence-free interval in those patients. We know that half of that trial population was in the T1C range. And then we also have the ATTEMPT trial, which again was a trial where stage one HER2 positive patients taken to upfront surgery in the adjuvant setting, got a year of adjuvant TDM1. Again, half of those patients were in the T1C range, like our patient here, and had an incredibly good five-year recurrence-free interval of 98.3%. So we really do have very compelling data, including clinical T1C and zero patients who are two positive specifically, telling us that we can achieve excellent outcomes with upfront surgery, followed by one of these more de-escalated systemic regimens. But there are also legitimate arguments in favor of taking these larger clinically stage one tumors and giving them upfront systemic therapy. One of those is that the Catherine trial, which tells us, which I'll show a little bit later, but which tells us that we can benefit patients with residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy by giving them adjuvant TDM1, that patients with clinical T1C and zero tumors were eligible for that trial. So, you know, maybe we don't want to have patients miss out on the opportunity for that escalation if they don't have a PCR. And then I think 
think the more important argument here that affects a reasonably large proportion of these patients is that actually even more so than in the triple negative clinical T1CN0 population, we know that pathologic nodal disease is found at surgery in a pretty large proportion of these patients. And specifically, this is some work done from our institution, where we found that if you looked at clinical T1CN0 HER2-positive patients who, again, clinically node negative and were taken to upfront surgery, we actually saw a 25% rate of pathologic nodal positivity in those patients, which, you know, again, that's a pretty large proportion of patients who we will be regretful as medical and as surgical oncologists in the adjuvant setting that we didn't give them the opportunity to get a more comprehensive regimen and something like adjuvant TDM1. So, you know, again, there is not a right answer to this question, and I think you'll get different answers. And as you'll see in the way that trials are designed, you'll get different answers depending on who you ask. But, you know, if you take a patient to upfront surgery, then I think the biggest downside is that you're risking undertreatment for patients who do turn out to be pathologically node positive. There's also this possible risk that you're undertreating those few patients who recurred with an adjuvant de-escalated regimen, but that really is a very small number of patients, and we don't, because patients do so, so well on those regimens, we don't know if they would have been rescuable with additional therapy. And if we give all of these patients upfront systemic therapy, and really the standard upfront systemic therapy would have to be something like TCHP, then we basically know that we're over-treating from a medical oncology perspective all of those patients who actually could have gone to upfront surgery and gotten simplified and de-escalated adjuvant regimen and were exposing those patients to a significant amount of toxicity. So like I said, I don't think there's a clear right answer here, but it's, I think, a very important cohort to do as best as you can to accurately stage the axilla up front to help you make this decision, and also a population where it will be interesting and important for us to develop prognostic biomarkers. And of course, considerations that you can bring in as you make this sort of impossible decision are about the patient's age. Are they less is more and more is more? Their fitness and comorbidities. How big are they within the T1C range? So as Sarah said, you know, I think sometimes we use 1.5 centimeters as a little bit of an unofficial and not evidence-based cutoff and then their hormone receptor status and whether you're going to be able to offer them adjuvant endocrine therapy and give them the benefits of that approach. So this is the same case again. Again, a clinical T1CN0 HER2-positive tumor, what would your approach be to this patient? I think the right answer in my mind to this question is that you do an axillary ultrasound, which is the way to do as best you can to make sure if you're considering upfront surgery that that's appropriate. But say that axillary ultrasound is negative, I think, you know, there's an appropriate spectrum of responses here. uh, And you would get different ones if you ask different medical and surgical oncology teams. All right, so let's move on to another case. So you have a 43-year-old who is now self-palpating a right breast mass. On imaging, this is 2.5 centimeters, and there's radiographic concern for an enlarged lymph node. You get a biopsy of the mass, which is a hormone receptor negative in her two-positive tumor. And then you affinate the lymph node, and it's positive for malignant cells. So this is a clinical T2N1, her two-positive tumor. And on physical exam, you confirm the same. So what would our best next step be in management for this now node-positive her two-positive tumor? The point that I wanted to get at and review a little bit from a medical oncology perspective is now for a clearly node positive, HER2 positive patient, who I think the clear consensus is we're going to give her preoperative systemic therapy. What systemic therapy regimen are we choosing as medical oncologists? 
And this is something that has been hotly debated for a decade now, basically, or more. And basically, we've had historically two choices, an anthracycline-based regimen, which is usually ACTHP or THPAC, where uh, the A or the doxorubicin is the anthracycline drug, or a regimen like the one that's shown on the end here, which is TCHP or docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab. Now that it's the modern era, this trial did not include pertuzumab, but now in the modern era, we would put pertuzumab in as a component of a neoadjuvant regimen. And so this trial was the first one that really looked at an anthracycline-containing regimen, like ACTH or ACTHP, versus an anthracycline-sparing regimen, like TCH or TCHP. This trial didn't actually compare the two head-to-head, but when you looked at the outcomes alongside each other, it really looked looked like the outcome seemed pretty equivalent for the ACTHP-like regimen and the TCH-like regimen. And then very importantly, as you can see on the bottom here, you know, it really is quite clear that if you spare the anthracycline, you end up giving the patient a lower risk of cardiac toxicity and numerically fewer cases of secondary leukemia. And secondary leukemia is obviously very uncommon regardless, but it does look clearly to be slightly increased by using an anthracycline agent. And so that trial gave us some confidence that we could potentially spare the anthracycline for these higher-risk HER2-positive patients. More recently, there was a different trial conducted called the TRAIN-2 trial, which did actually a head-to-head comparison of an anthracycline-containing regimen, which is the blue one on the bottom there, versus an anthracycline-sparing regimen, which is the orange one on the top. And what these authors showed is that in terms of PCR rates, there were very high PCR rates, 67 68% with both of these regimens, and they obviously looked equivalent. It didn't look like there was an advantage to incorporating anthracycline. And of course, we care about PCR rates, but we care even more as medical oncologists about event-free survival and overall survival. And we saw as well here that it really looked like long-term outcomes were maintained even without the anthracycline given in the early stage setting with, again, less cardiac toxicity when you don't give the adriamycin and less leukemia. So the bottom line here is I think, you know, nationwide, the anthracycline containing regimens, whether in the neoadjuvant or the adjuvant setting for her to positive breast cancer are really falling out of favor. We have both of these trials, BCIRG006 and TRAIN2, that are giving us confidence we can achieve similar long-term outcomes when we use a taxane-based as opposed to an anthracycline-based regimen. That seems to be true even in the highest risk patients, and we certainly expose them to less cardiac toxicity and fewer cases cases of leukemia. So more and more, I think that you've probably already seen and will continue to see, we're using TCHP as opposed to something like THPAC. I want to mention one, put one slide in here just about immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant HER2-positive breast cancer population. You just heard a lot at the beginning of the session about how, what a home run immunotherapy has been in the neoadjuvant setting for triple negative breast cancer. And so, you know, just to say the same question or similar question has been asked in early stage HER2-positive breast cancer as well. The Impassion 050 trial looked at adding atezolizumab, a different checkpoint inhibitor, to a neoadjuvant. ACTHP type of regimen, and there was absolutely no difference in PCR rates between the checkpoint inhibitor and the non-checkpoint inhibitor arms of this trial. That seemed to be true regardless of whether you were pdl one positive or pdl one negative, and not only did it not add anything in terms of efficacy, but actually there were more deaths in the atezolizumab arm on this trial. 
So it seemed to add important, obviously very worrisome toxicity. So this has been looked at in a phase three trial, and we do not use neoadjuvant immunotherapy for patients with HER2-positive disease. I think, you know, you'll see more and more this question of whether neoadjuvant THP as opposed to TCHP will become a new standard for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer being treated in the neoadjuvant setting. And I won't belabor this in the interest of time, but there are two large trials that are ongoing, Compass HER2-PCR in the U.S., decrescendo in Europe, both of which are looking at whether THP is an adequate regimen to start with for patients with stage 2 and 3 HER2 positive breast cancer. So at present, that is still not the standard. Somebody treated in the new adjuvant setting will typically get a regimen like TCHP, but maybe in a couple of years with the results of these two trials, we'll understand that we can do a slightly less intensive regimen. So in this, let's move on to a second portion of this case and talk a little bit about nodes, although I know you said, Laura, this has already been discussed quite a lot today. So in this case, you have this node-positive patient. She gets her six cycles of neoadjuvant TCHP. She has an excellent and complete clinical response. So she goes from clinically node-positive to negative. How do you approach the axilla surgically here? Her two positive or triple negative, they're getting preoperative systemic therapy or we're considering preoperative systemic therapy. Those are the main patients that we're doing axillary ultrasound on routinely for patients who are hormone positive and planned for upfront surgery or very small triple negative or very small HER2 positive mm-hmm. breast cancers. That's not something we're doing routinely. In this particular patient, similar to the patient we had with the triple negative disease, it sounds like she's had a very nice response to the therapy that she now has a clinically negative axilla. And this would be a patient, again, where we would potentially begin by offering her sentinel lymph node biopsy and then make decision intraoperatively about whether an axillary dissection is needed based on the response. So this is our final case, and I think we have about two more minutes before we want to move to your questions, which should be a perfect amount of time. So in this case, this is a patient who presents with a large breast mass. She has multiple positive lymph nodes at baseline. This is a HER2-positive tumor. In her case, she gets her six cycles of neoadjuvant TCHP and unfortunately does not have as good of a clinical response. So she makes it to a lumpectomy with an axillary lymph node dissection for persistently clinically node-positive disease and has residual disease in both breast and node. And so from the medical oncology perspective at this point, what should we do with her? And so the standard of care here is the use of adjuvant TDM1 that I had referenced earlier, and this was established as a standard by the Catherine trial, which was presented back in 2018, and compared patients in this exact situation who'd gotten neoadjuvant therapy, had residual disease at surgery, and randomized them to either TDM1 or trastuzumab. And in this trial, there was about a hazard ratio of exactly 50% in favor of reduced events long-term and improved outcomes with the TDM1 over the trastuzumab arm. And so we routinely, in patients with any amount, even one millimeter of residual invasive disease, will give them adjuvant TDM1 on the basis of these data. We have a couple of trials that will potentially tell us, should we be doing even more than TDM1 for these high-risk patients? The Estefania trial is going to look at adding TDM1 plus atezolizumab and see if that adds something in terms of outcomes. I already told you the enthusiasm is very muted for immunotherapy and HER2-positive disease, but we'll see what this shows. 
And then, you know, the most exciting drug we have as medical oncologists at this point in HER2 positive breast cancer, and also actually HER2 negative, HER2 low breast cancer, is of course TDXD, or in HER2, a novel antibody drug conjugate. And so the Destiny Breast 05 trial is again, is going to compare this residual disease patient population and see if TDM1 versus TDX, which is more advantageous between TDM1 and TDXD. Great. Thank you. So I do want to try to answer some of the questions both that you've submitted and that have come through virtually. Sarah, I'm going to give the first one to you just because we've discussed this in our group a lot. There is some concern for these patients who are now potentially having a positive sentinel node in the setting of hormone positive disease that are now not going on to have an axillary dissection. How do you make the decision about ABEMA? Great question, because as we were alluding to, the eligibility for using Abema meant that you had to have one to three positive nodes and have a tumor over five centimeters or be high grade or have more than four nodes. And so if we have someone who just got a sentinel node and let's say has one node but doesn't have a tumor that's over five centimeters or is not high grade, then as a medical oncologist, we're not sure if they're a candidate for bemocyclob. And so this does come up is does someone actually need an axillary dissection then to make that determination? And in truth, most of us are not pushing our surgical colleagues to go back to the operating room and get the axillary dissection simply to tell us the number of lymph nodes involved, purely to make someone a candidate for a bemocyclob. I think most of us are using a bit of clinical judgment. If someone has a high probability of being found to have additional nodal involvement, that will often sway us. Or if, you know, the tumor is a little bit borderline, it's four centimeters instead of five centimeters. I mean, it's a bigger cancer. I think, again, we tend to lean towards using a bemocycla, but I am not pushing people to get an axillary dissection. Great. Thank you. And to stay on the hormone positive kind of theme here, you know, the, for that second case, that was a premenopausal woman with a node positive breast cancer. There's a number of questions that are asking about the role of genomic testing in terms of when would you do an oncotype on a patient like that? And then also thoughts on not oncotype, but something like mammoprint or blueprint. How would you decide what to use? Yeah. So, you know, the, it's a very, there could be a two hour symposium on, you know, the use of a genomic risk score like oncotype in a premenopausal node positive, ER positive patient. It's obviously, you know, for us as medical oncologists, an area of huge controversy. We have randomized data from the RX Bonder trial that if you look at it at face value implies that there is uh, at least some benefit to chemotherapy for any premenopausal patient who has an ER positive tumor that is node positive. And so you could make an argument that you wouldn't even send an oncotype in a patient like that who's premenopausal and node positive because that patient has benefit, stands to derive benefit from chemotherapy. You know, in practice for a patient who has more, you know, seemingly minimal nodal disease burden, given the caveats of those data and the fact that, you know, we really think that we have so many other tools beyond chemotherapy at this point that we can offer these node positive ER positive patients, things like ovarian suppression and the adjuvant abemacyclib. You know, I think that we often as medical oncologists, if we have a situation where we think it's going to be a more minimal nodal disease burden, you know, I personally, and I think most of us would send a genomic risk score in that case. Obviously, if you're seeing multiple, multiple, you know, positive lymph nodes on exam or on imaging, then that's probably somebody who you're going to tell as a premenopausal patient or 
potentially a postmenopausal patient for that matter, that you don't need to send a genomic risk score and you feel like that person is going to be committed to chemotherapy. But for a, you know, a modest lymph node burden, I would send the oncotype and help uh, use it to help inform treatment decisions. In terms of, you know, which genomic risk score to send, the oncotype versus the mammoprint are generally the two options that we're thinking of. You know, certainly we as an institution typically favor sending the oncotype. We have, I would say, since we have so much more data about oncotype and sort of where the values fall on a spectrum, you know, we know from big trials like Taylor X and RX Bonder exactly what benefits and lack of benefits we expect to see from chemo in different score ranges. I personally find oncotype just a more helpful test to send because it gives a little bit more granularity depending on where their score falls as opposed to mamprint, which gives you a high risk or a low risk determination. And we have a little bit less data about what to do in the gray areas. That being said, it's absolutely reasonable to send mammoprint. We have data that mammoprint can be helpful in guiding therapies in node negative and node positive patients. But, you know, our typical institutional practice is very much to send oncotype. Great. And that question for that surgical, so I'll answer it. I won't make you guys. For There's a question about for patients who are going to the operating room for potential sentinel node, do we, you know, always consent them for possible actually lymph node dissection based on intraoperative findings? And I would say for patients who have received preoperative systemic therapy, yes, that is very often the case that we're reflexing to do an actual dissection if the nodes come back positive or if they don't map to a sentinel node. And I think the other setting we talked about with the patient with what looked to be a single low volume of disease in the nodes. I personally do consent all those patients for an axillary lymph node dissection as well at time of surgery. And that's because number one, there are times when you get in there and they're really not, you know, grossly negative nodes. You can tell that really clinically they're positive. And then I wouldn't offer that patient a sentinel node in that setting because they really wouldn't meet the criteria for Z11. And I think the other thing, I have the benefit of having the ability to have intraoperative evaluation of my nodes. And when I have a patient like that, where I know they are node positive, I will even send my sentinel nodes for intraoperative evaluation because if I find out there's more than two nodes that are positive, I'm going to convert them to an axillary dissection at that time as well. I think we'll probably cut it off there. Thank you. Thank you so much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RGA 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Merck & Company, Incorporated.